I want to say thank you to those who um, participated this evening and provided us with that fresh look at the event that shaped our spiritual lives and really gave us life, life eternal. Before we uh, look into the Word of God for a few moments tonight, Eddie occasioned to be in another church this morning, and it was heavy on my heart that while we in the West are enjoying such freedom and are able to able to worship God without any fear whatsoever, that some of the some of the church in the world, and I mean particularly the Coptic Christians of Egypt, have been through a horrific. Few, few days to the point where I believe the death toll stood at about 47 persons and maybe hundreds injured besides that. I said, would you bow with me for a moment? We're going to ask God to bless Christians in the world, especially those tonight who can't worship with the kind of freedom that we are enjoying in our land. Father, thank you once again for what you say to us during this season from both Old and New Testaments. We've proclaimed the the death of Jesus Christ as the answer for our needs. It's the answer for the needs of this world. The Prince of Peace suffered such injustice to bring peace to our souls. Tonight, Father, we are so thankful for what you've given us in this land. The ability to hear the gospel freely and to preach it freely, to assemble as we are this evening, as we did this morning, in public places, without fear of of any of the things that could possibly happen and have happened just so very recently in Egypt. I pray for these precious people who gathered to rejoice on Palm Sunday and whose celebrations were cut short by the blast of a bomb and the loss of life and the fear that must have permeated that group. So I pray for these Coptic Christians, brothers and sisters across the world who honor the name of Jesus Christ. Help us to stand with them in these moments and in the days ahead, and we intercede for them, Lord, that they might feel your strength and your comfort in a very difficult moment. Again, we thank you for those who've joined with us in this service tonight. And I pray that the word of God will speak to us all about the richness of the cross. We thank you for it now. In Christ's name, amen. 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 I want to speak to you for a little while this evening on a topic entitled, The Cross Convinces. As I, as I read and uh, as I absorb Christian thought, you get, you get to meet interesting people, if not in person, at least through their writings and through some of their video presentations. And I had been watching in recent days Dr. Nabil Qureshi, a very convincing person in my mind member of the speaking team at Ravi Zacharias International Ministries and the author of a book entitled Seeking Allah, Finding Jesus. 
He holds a, an MD from Eastern Virginia Medical School. He's got an MA in Christian apologetics from Bi Biola, an MA in religion from Duke. He's constantly in demand uh, as, a, as a moderator in, pub or in moderated public debates. All parts of North America look for him, Europe and Asia find it so difficult to think that, uh, and David was telling me a few days ago, David LaRose, about 9,000 students going to a huge hall just to be a part of a Christian debate in the United States. But this man's focus is on the foundations of the Christian faith and the early history and teachings of Islam. For Dr. Karishi, the cross is the central theme on which Christianity depends. And in an interview that I read so very recently, he stated this, I call Jesus' death on the cross the litmus test between Islam and Christianity, because Christianity clearly affirms it, and Islam clearly denies it. If the historical evidence favors one position or the other, then the evidence favors one religion over the other. And the historical evidence for Jesus' death on the cross is overwhelming. The cross is a convincing event in our world, in our history. There's good eyewitness testimony that reaches the same kind of conclusion. And it's on the front of your bulletin today. I didn't realize what our bulletin cover was going, was going to look like until my sermon was, was done. And then Allison placed it on my desk. And it was a wonderful moment when I realized that where I was going in my message tonight and the bulletin cover even that she gave to me were connected. Matthew 27 and 54 says this. When the centurion and those who were with him, and those with him who were guarding Jesus, saw the earthquake and all that had happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely he was the Son of God. Mark chapter 15 and verse 39, and Luke chapter 23 and verse 47 record the same exact con conclusion. The cross commands attention. It arrests the casual observer and focuses a person to take a side. You cannot come to the cross of Jesus Christ and remain neutral. The cross dismantles ambivalence wherever it finds it and forces us to some kind of a decision about what exactly happened there. Paul Goodkey said, the cross is God's centerpiece on the table of time. Foresight wrote, Christ is to us just what his cross is. All that Christ was in heaven or on earth was put into what he did there. Christ, I repeat, is to us just what his cross is. You do not understand Christ until you understand his cross. Muggeridge, who at one time was a was somewhat of a skeptic, maybe an agnostic, Malcolm Muggeridge, spoke of his heart standing still when he saw two pieces of wood even accidentally nailed together. 
And all of this despite the fact that he was brought up in some kind of a socialist Sunday school where he said he learned a sort of agnosticism that had been sweetened by hymns. But Mugridge called the cross a precious standard pointed to his own failures. It was derided in his home, yet it was his own focus of inconceivable hopes and desires. The cross becomes something when you approach it. But folks, what was it like? And we've heard it read today, and, and we've heard it described from both kinds of testaments. What was it like to stand at the foot of Golgotha and watched a wrecked human being die. The, cent the centurion who's at the focus of my scripture had probably seen hundreds expire. Usually within 48 hours, the victim died of, of, de of dehydration and suffocation and the stress of trying to lift his tortured body high enough to bring air into his starved lungs. And if it took too long for someone to succumb to this, then a heavy stick was used to crush the lower bones. And then the person would sometimes die from the internal bleeding of multiple fractures. The criminal life was over. Rome knew what to do to take a life. It knew how to deal with zealots and revolutionaries. And what the whip couldn't do, the cross always accomplished for them. But as this centurion stood at this cross, he knew that he was witnessing a different kind of scene. This was no ordinary execution. And it was not ordinary for a number of reasons. I want to take a few moments and point out some of those reasons to you this evening on Good Friday, 2017. Firstly, the centurion was watching an innocent man die. Four times Jesus had been declared not guilty during the travesty of his trial. There were flagrant violations of the code of legal ethics and procedures that were supposed to have been followed in Jewish law. And Judas was probably right when he said, I have betrayed innocent blood. And Pilate summarized the case wisely, but without the conviction that produces action, he said, I find no fault in him, but failed to release him. Pilate's wife had earlier given him a warning, have nothing to do with this just man, this innocent man. And like the ideal lamb that was marked in Old Testament times for the Passover meal, he was found to be without blemish. The centurion was watching a good man die, not just an innocent one. Could this be the same Jesus whose reputation had filled the nation? Could this have been the healer? Is this the one who just a short time before had raised the dead just a short distance from Jerusalem? Was he the one with power over demons? Was he the one who had healed a fellow centurion servant just by sending his word? He'd created a small stir when he drove the money changers out of, out of the temple, and he debated hotly with religious leaders, but that was not reason for death. 
Acts 10 and 38 reflects upon the life of Jesus and says he went about doing good. Thieves and soldiers recognized truth more readily than the religious elite did of Jesus' day. The thief said, this man has done nothing amiss. Allison read it for us just a few moments ago. And the centurion, when he was finished, put his seal upon it and said, Truly this man was the Son of God, and it's notorious enough to have made it to the front of your bulletin today. How interesting it is that the centurion was watching both a hated man and a loved man die, and he was simultaneously both things. The Roman judgment hall, the, pray, the praetorium, rang with the calls of the mob for the death of this man. It was rare, but pious religionists and socialites rubbed soldiers with the commoners in the mob, and they in the mob, and they vented their bloodlust for the one they saw as a threat for their corrupt and lifeless kingdom. There were those who hated him without a cause. At the foot of the cross stood the weeping form of a broken-hearted mother and the sword that Simeon spoke of in the temple when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus there to be dedicated was now piercing her heart as she watched her son die in the most horrible of fashions. Could this be my father's business that Jesus spoke about when they found them at 12 years of age reasoning in the temple with the legal experts of his day? cross the centurion was watching his substitute die another man likely by this time was rejoicing in his unexpected freedom but he could have been just as easily hanging on a cross the man who should have been there would have been in good company between thieves Barabbas was rightly an insurrectionist Probably in our language, we would call him a terrorist. He tried to start a revolution against Rome and was destined for the cross. In a last-ditch effort to save an innocent man, Pilate appealed to the crowd to have Jesus released and Barabbas finally brought to justice. But the mob would not relent, and they called the louder for the death of Jesus Christ. Even 40 stripes that had left his back a mangled and bloodied mess of flesh did not appease the mob. They wanted the death of Jesus and nothing else. And perhaps without realizing it, the centurion who had overseen the nails being driven into the hands and the feet of Jesus was witnessing the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy that Ken read for us this evening. He was seeing a lamb led to the slaughter. He saw a despised man and a rejected man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He saw a man who carried grief and sorrow. Those words burn into my heart this evening he he was stricken smitten afflicted wounded bruised and chastised Isaiah saw him as the suffering servant of the Lord, the Lamb of God viciously beaten, justice denied him, cut off from the land of the living that's the cross that's the means that accomplish what we enjoy as Christians tonight. See, despite its gruesome quality and the obvious conflict and the raw violence that just flows out of the cross scene, the cross is an instrument of peace.
The Anglican scholar Bishop Stephen Neal stated this in the Christian the theology of history, the death of Christ is the central point. Here all the roads of the past converge and all the roads to the future diverge. The cross is God's way of reconnecting us to him. The Prince of Peace gave his life to create the peace that I enjoy with God this evening and that you enjoy with him. The cross obtains peace through words and deeds of forgiveness. If there's anything that convinces, forgiveness does. Forgiveness constructs a foundation for peace. Father, forgive them are the finest words of peace ever spoken. Rome prescribed a penalty for wrong. Life was to be forfeited in order for justice, justice to be served. But understand it, folks, tonight. God demanded justice as well. The sinner should die for his sin. He should pay for his crime. And here's the paradox of the cross. The man who dies next to the thief is giving him life. A, a condemned man on the center cross offers forgiveness to one who is likewise condemned with all of the power of the mercy of God behind it. Justice would be served all right, but Jesus would pay the penalty, not for his own sin, but for yours and mine. He is our substitute, the peace of God that we enjoy this evening. Reconciliation that I enjoy with my Heavenly Father was purchased at infinite cost. You see, the cross forces a decision. The centurion was provoked. You cannot encounter the cross truly without being, without being provoked. After Jesus died, two secret disciples emerged. Nicodemus, who before had met him by night, and Joseph of Arimathea, lovingly provided for the burial. The whole scene of, sal of salvation for every person is played out in the dialogue between Jesus and two condemned thieves. Here we see choice at its best. One decides wisely and embraces the final offer of a dying Savior. The other goes rebellious and cursing into eternity. Peace with God is always your decision and my decision. The cross provokes that kind of choice that kind of decision. I would suspect that the centurion, given the position he held, had seen hundreds die, perhaps thousands. Soldiers in occupied countries were often a calloused lot of people. Yet this man was profoundly touched by the man he helped to, to execute. I think at times he may have been unfamiliar with Jesus' teachings might never have heard the rich parables that we've studied. Perhaps he'd never seen an actual miracle. A hardened soldier of Rome may not have been impressed with talks of a kingdom of peace and justice because for Rome, might was right. Yet three gospel writers 
record his unique confession. You see, nothing convinces like the cross, and there is nothing as universally applicable to the human race. Edith Brock said, take another look at the cross and see the revelation. The cross is a sword that cuts our conscience. It is a key that unlocks our prisons. It is a royal scepter under which we will live eternally with him in his kingdom. What will it take today to bring peace to our families? What will it take to bring peace to our world? What will it take to bring peace inside of the trouble, even in this community we're a part of? So what's to be the ground zero, the focus of the Christian message that we proclaim? Words can be so empty. They're spoken without the proper motivation or care. Superficial holiness is worthless. The selected lists of things we can do and things we cannot do won't win people. In fact, it may do just the opposite. Being socially active really doesn't cut it. Politically in, uh, political involvement won't really save people. Campbell Morgan made the statement that cuts to the heart of the matter, and he said, it's the crucified person that can preach the cross. Remember Thomas? He said, except I shall see in his hands the print of the nails, I will not believe. And what Thomas said of Christ, the world is saying of the church, unless I see in your hands the print of the nails, I will not believe. It is only a person who has died with Christ who can truly preach the cross of Christ. Having finished his formal education, in 1719, a young nobleman set out on a grand tour of Europe. It was during this tour, he found himself in the German city of Dusseldorf, and he was lost from his entourage for a period of time. They made a search for him, and when they found him, he was in a he was in an art museum. He was sitting in front of a painting transfixed with Domenico Fetti's work called Ecce Homo, Behold the Man. He was arrested. This young nobleman arrested by what he saw in this painting representing Christ. And he said, into every liniment of whose face the Christian artist had painted love. This young nobleman saw the pierced hands, the bleeding brow, and wounded side. And below it, there was a couplet. Underneath the painting, it said, all this I did for thee, what hast thou done for me? A new revelation of the claim upon, of Jesus Christ upon every life especially every life upon whom the grace of God had fallen, flashed upon this young man, and hour after hour passed, and he sat gazing intently upon the face of the suffering one that Fetty had painted. The day waxed to pace. The lingering rays of sunlight extended. 
and finally fell upon the bowed form of a man named Count Nicholas Ludwig von Zinzendorf. Weeping and sobbing out his devotion to the Christ who not only saved his soul, but had now conquered his heart. And there and then this young Count asked the Lamb of God to draw him into the fellowship of his sufferings and to open up a life of service for him. Zinzendorf went on to found the mighty Moravian mission. A mission so powerful that at times people sold themselves into slavery in the West Indies and in other parts of the world merely so they could win the right to preach, preach the gospel. The accounts are, uh, uh, of the Moravians are rife with men waving goodbye to their families on the docks of Britain, never to see their homeland again, just content to preach the gospel to those who'd never heard. We come to Good Friday and it's filled with the trappings of so many things that are cultural and ununderstood. I saw people walk into churches today that had not walked in for a year or more. Pastors speak in hushed tones behind the scenes about the C&E crowd. In case you don't know, that's not Christian education, that's Christmas and Easter. Barclay says it so eloquently. And with this, I'll, I'll close this evening. The cross is the proof that there is no length to which the love of God will refuse to go in order to win people's hearts. The cross is the medium of reconciliation because the cross is the final proof of the love of God. And a love like that demands an answering love. If the cross does not awaken love and wonder in people's hearts, nothing else will. And so our message must always be the preaching of the cross. The cross is both the final proof of the love of God, and the only thing that will awaken people to the power of the love of God. How like God to take something so grisly, so obscene, an instrument of violence, an instrument of death. How like God to take a horrid moment that people recoil from and turn their faces away from and turn it into the only thing that can establish peace with him. How like God to produce a group of people whose symbol becomes two pieces of wood fastened together upon which the Son of God died. And for us to say, I will cherish the old rugged cross how unlikely that we could take an instrument of torture and turn it into a symbol of life. That's why I say this evening, the cross convinces. 
And if we do not live the cross and preach the cross, nothing else that we do will matter. Would you bow with me in prayer as our musicians return? Father, thank you for the power of the cross. It is not, it is not a revolting place for us. It's a revolutionary place. It's a place where the God who had become flesh surrendered that flesh to the torture of execution but in offering himself created the means for us to be reconciled to the God from whom we had been estranged. And so tonight we rejoice in you. We thank you for what happened on Good Friday. We thank you for the way that it unfolded to give us the rich lessons about making decisions. And I pray this evening that we will not shrink from the preaching of the cross in the world that seems to recoil from it or to, or to deny its power. I pray that we will be drawn to it all the more. And may we have self-crucified and Jesus Christ exalted so that you might be praised in us. I thank you, Lord, for every person who has bowed in your presence this evening. We bless your name and praise you for what you accomplished through Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Father, if there are those who may be here this evening who've never pondered or never accepted the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And I pray that their hearts will be drawn to what you did there. And may they be convinced of the love of God through the preaching of the cross once again and through those prompting tones of the Spirit who comes to testify of the goodness and the love of God to grant eternal life through the death of God's Son. This we thank you for and praise you for and look forward to Sunday when we shall proclaim another great truth of the Christian faith. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen.